Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the special edition of A Vision for You Big Book Study. Today is Sunday, March 12, 2017. The share ID for Friday, March 10, 2017, 7 a.m. Eastern Time is 9709, and the 10 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time meeting share ID is 9711. Today, A Vision for You presents Practicing the Principles, Deliberate or Careless. What we know for sure is that the big book meticulously describes how to recover from the disease of alcoholism or compulsive overeating in our case. That a twofold disease, an allergy of the body and obsession of the mind, responds perfectly to the method outlined in the big book 100% of the time when the directions are applied specifically as laid out. Entire abstinence comes first to address the effect our allergic foods have on our body and to clear the mind a bit. Then the next order of business is the application of the 12 steps to treat the disease, which is the obsession of the mind, the spiritual malady the big book says is the greater aspect of our disease. Methodical and consistent application of these 12 steps in sequence, like our lives depend upon it, because it does, becomes a rebirth, a real second chance of living. Why all this insistence to chronologically working the steps? Why is that necessary? We're here to present practicing the principles, deliberate or careless, is a recovered compulsive overeater, faithful to the teaching of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, a very loyal contributor here at A Vision for You, and a bit of a history aficionado, Larry Kay from Chicago. Thank you so much. Well, let's listen as he describes the necessity, deliberate or careless. Welcome to the line, Larry Kay. Oh, welcome. Thanks, thanks, Melanie. Thanks for that introduction, and I, I so appreciate your service. It's it's a little early out there in, uh, on the West Coast here, so we, we appreciate that every day. We appreciate your service every day, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, it's a real honor. I, you know, anytime I get a chance to, to carry this message, um, it's a tremendous honor, you know, and, and it, it, one of the nice things, too, is it Every time I get to, to talk about these things and dig in a little bit further, um, it reinforces those principles to me, those deliberate principles to talk about. And, you know, this, this concept of practicing these principles that we, we try to do, are we going to be deliberate uh, or careless? And, uh, and I bring up the word careless not as a negative, but uh, merely it's part of my story because uh, for the first five years that I came into program, um, quite a number of years ago today, I, I was careless reflecting back and how I approached it. I, there were things I didn't know. There were things I would come to learn. There were things the disease was going to teach me that really couldn't be taught by any person, however they articulated it. Um, I, I, the disease would have to, to convince me that I would have to be, like Melanie talks about, you know, when we work this sequential process, we do it in order and, and, we, and we do have to be deliberate. So, I thought what might be helpful is to start with some operational definitions. You know, I come from a sort of a, a background of research and, and, and for anything, you know, we, we have to, you know, take a look at some, some key words here and, and make sure that we're talking about what the definition, those operational definitions of those key words are. So one of the first words in the title here is practice. And as a noun, the word practice is, you know, the actual application or use of an idea, belief, or method 
as opposed to theories about such application or use. You know, and uh, as a verb, you know, we perform an activity or exercise repeatedly or regularly in order to improve or maintain one's proficiency. So that accounts for practice. And then when we get to the word of principle, well, for our purposes, we're referring to each of the 12 steps. Because remember, you know, Bill, uh, in his writing style was such that, that he would use a variety of different words to describe the same concept and, and the principles we're talking about. Well, while we have for each step, there are under, uh, underlying principles for each one. Nonetheless, we, he often used the word principle to, to, to indicate uh, working the steps, the 12 steps. So when we look at the word deliberate, I like that word deliberate. Um, it's something that we do consciously, we do intentionally. And some of the synonyms uh, that describe that word deliberate are intentional, calculated, conscious, intended, planned, studied, knowing, willful, purposeful. I like the word purposeful, premeditated, preplanned. Now, you know, if we, if we look at uh, conversely, we, we look at the word careless, you know, that's, that's someone who's <clears throat> not necessarily giving sufficient attention. It's not, when I speak of the word careless in our context this morning, you know, I'm certainly not talking about a morally bad individual. You know, I'm not talking about someone who has horrible philosophies of living. Just someone who's perhaps, for one reason or another, they're not giving sufficient attention or thought to avoiding harm or errors. You know, I, I wasn't giving it much attention or consideration. I had been careless. You know, I left the window of this disease unlocked. I was careless. And we want to avoid that. So, okay, with, with those operational definitions in mind, let's dig in a bit into this, this proposition regarding the mindset that one brings to working the practical program of action. Because after all, it really does come down to one's mindset. But let's, let's recognize that when the big book was published on April 10th of 1939, it was put forth to the world as, you know, as a, as a you know, well, it, let me say it was not put forth to the world as a sort of a repertoire of instructional strategies, sort of like a handbook. It was not put forward that way as a handbook you know, that sort of invites attention to the student, that would be me or you, to, you know, invites the attention to the student's varied learning needs, oh, emotional proclivities, our ups and downs, or, or some sort of readiness assessment. You know, it, it, you know, ready or not, here comes the disease, right? Ready or not, here comes the disease. The disease is always in a state of readiness to take us down. And I mean, the instructional manual that men and women in combat, let's talk about combat, you know, in the military. They're given an a instructional manual, kind of like the instructional text that we're given to follow this program of action. They're given an instructional manual, these men and women in combat, as they receive training for how to stay alive when taken prisoner, because that happens, unfortunately. And do you know that that instructional manual is, is very precise, very precise. 
And as a matter of fact, not to, to digress too much, they have something called the survival. I'm not from. I don't. I don't have a military background, so this is just stuff I've researched. They have something called the Survival Evasion Resistance and Escape Program, and I bring it up to tie it back to what to our discussion this morning. Don't want to get too too off track, but it's it's basically you know known by this acronym of SEER, Survival evasion, resistance, and escape. And, and what the U.S. military, you know, they do is they provide um, military uh, folks with a training in evading and capture and survival skills and a military code of conduct with integrity and all these things. And w- would it surprise you to know that this instruction manual was written by people who had been taken prisoner and survive that ordeal? Would that surprise you to know that? People who had experienced, they had direct experience with this, and they took deliberate action that led directly to not dying. Those were the people who wrote this. And based on the experiences of the, uh, from what from my research, uh, which wasn't very extensive and involved Google, uh, they, they, based on the experiences of the British and American pilots who managed to escape and evade from the Germans during World War II. This is where this all started. And they returned to friendly lines and and they formed uh, clubs and created, uh, one such club they created was the Late Returners Club. The Late Returners Club. So, you know, you, you ask yourself, I ask myself, if these codes of conduct sound like deliberate concepts built around specific actions, specific steps they could take, or are these perhaps carelessly developed based on feelings and readiness to engage in them? No, this is life or death stuff, literally. And some of the articles from this code of conduct, it's funny, I won't belabor it too much, but you know, they have like, uh, see, five articles. You know, the first one, I'm an American fighting in the forces which guard my country and our way of life, and I'm prepared to give my life in their defense. And then it you know, goes down, I will never surrender of my own free will. If in command, I will never surrender the members of my command while they still have means to resist. And it goes on, if I become a prisoner of war, I will keep you know, faith with my fellow prisoners. I will give no information or take part in any action which might be harmful to my comrades. If I am senior, I will take command. If not, I will obey the lawful orders of those appointed over me and will back them up in every way. And lastly, you know, uh, and and I'm not reading all the details, but one of the steps is when questioned, should I become a prisoner of war, I'm required to give name, rank, and service number. We've all seen the movies, date of birth. I will evade answering further questions to the utmost of my ability. I will make no oral or written statements disloyal to my country and its allies or harmful to their cause. You know, I mean, the instructional manual that men and women in combat are given as they receive training for how to stay alive when taken prisoners, fairly precise. And it was written by those who had experientially gone through this process and come out on the other side of the bridge and they, are, they, are, they, they lived. Now, what's interesting for me is here is, you know, in a similar fashion, it's not lost on me that the big book is quite clear when it says in the forward to the first edition, the forward to the first edition. It says we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered 
they've recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered. They, they came out on the other end. They were taken prisoner, if you will, and they, they, they went through a process. They followed a certain things that got them out on the other side of the bridge alive. They recovered. And so to show other prisoners, if you will, indulge me here, precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. For them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication will be necessary. See, I don't have to, I'm going to pick on Melanie because, well, it's Melanie, I'm going to pick on her. You know, I don't have to convince Melanie that this works. You know why I don't have to convince Melanie that this works? I've met Melanie a number of occasions. Melanie and I, you know, we, we will chat from time to time, text probably here and there. I don't have to convince Melanie because she was a prisoner, prisoner of war, if you will, and she followed certain, certain steps, certain articles of faith, if you will, and she came out on the other side. She, she did that. Her, the, the higher power, I guess we can, we can, we can philosophize, we can argue her higher power did the heavy lifting, but, but the point is, is Emily, came, Emily, Melanie came out on the other side. I don't have to convince her of anything, nor does she have to convince me. We were on the we were on a lifeboat, her out on the West Coast, me out in Chicago, and we're still on the lifeboat by the grace of God. There's no convincing. There's, there's it's not necessary. She's experienced it. I've experienced it. So, you know, uh, I was thinking of, of of asking for a group conscience to change the words. That have been that have not been changed, by the way, for almost 80 years. Nothing major, nothing major, just a little change. How about the following subtle change to make the program more palatable to those who are not ready? How about that? How about you know to show other alcoholics in a fairly vague and somewhat confusing way how thousands who have not yet recovered but remain steadfast and endeavoring to find an easier, softer way. Did I say easier way to control this deadly disease? This is the main purpose of the book. <laughs> you know, do I hear do I hear a second to my motion? Uh, no crickets. Well, of course it doesn't read that way, and of course we wouldn't change it that way. And yet sometimes, perhaps it's not lost on you that we we do treat it that way. And I find it interesting that one of our co-founders, Bill W, as a young boy, growing up in East Dorset, Vermont. He was a, a complex character of varied traits, we've learned. And there was evidence that he had, he had traits of being deliberate as a child, years before his descent into the madness of this disease. And here's an, a, an account of one such example that I pulled from page 29 from the book Pass It On. It's a approved literature. And um, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to read here from, from this uh, Page 28, it just, to me, I, I just found it fascinating because I'm reading again this book, Pass It On. Um, and let me flip over to page 29. Because <clears throat> I thought he was, one of the things that Bill did was, even as a young boy, he, wanted, he was challenged to build this boomerang. We may have heard, heard about this. And uh, it says, encouraged by his grandfather, Bill plunged into a succession of activities with single-minded determination. See, he was a kid of the high school age, a trait that remained with him throughout his life. One project that stood out in his memory was the Boomerang Project, 
I in quotes, my grandfather got into the habit of coming to me with what he thought were impossible projects, Phil recalled. One day he said to me, hey, Will, that's what he called him, right? For that's what he called me. Will, I, I've been reading this book on Australia, and it says that the natives down there have something they call a boomerang, which is a weapon that they throw. And if it misses its mark, it turns and returns to the thrower. And Will, he said very challengingly, it says in, in, in this book that nobody but an Australian can make and throw a boomerang. Now, Bill says in quotes, my hackles rose. My hackles rose when he said that nobody but an Australian could do it. I can remember how I cried out, well, I will be the first man, first American man to make and throw a boomerang. I suppose at this particular juncture, I was 11 or 12. For most children, Bill later reflected, <laughs> such an ambition might have lasted a few days or a few, uh, for, uh, for a few moments. But mine was a powerful drive that kept on for six months, and I did nothing else during all that time but whittle on those infernal boomerangs. I sawed the headboard out of my bed to get just the right piece of wood, and out in the old workshop at night, by the light of the lantern, I whittled away. And finally, the day came when Bill made a, a boomerang that worked. He called his grandfather to watch as he threw the boomerang. It circled the churchyard near their house and almost struck Fayette. That's his grandfather, Fayette. It almost struck Fayette in the head as it came back. I remember how ecstatically happy and stimulated I was by this crowning success, Bill said. I became a number one man. Success with the boomerang now set Bill to proving himself a number one man in other activities. He decided that with, a, with enough perseverance and determination, he could do anything he set his mind to. You know, it's funny. So there's some determination, even before this guy was taken down by the disease. You know, in the field of education, <clears throat> we've learned that among students, IQ was not the only difference between the best and the worst students. Some of the very best performers did not have stratospheric IQ scores. And, and conversely, some of the smartest students don't perform so well in school. And it turns out that perhaps the greatest predictor of success in a whole variety of endeavors isn't IQ at all. And it isn't social intelligence. And it's not good looks, nor is it being raised by two parents, nor is it your financial statement. Oh, thank God for that. Nobody wants to see my financial statement. But anyway, uh, nope, it was nothing like that. But it was something called grit. And grit is one's passion and perseverance for long-term goals. Grit is having the stamina in the face of struggle, the determination, right? Grit is sticking with your future day in, day out, one day at a time, not just for the week, not just for the month, but for years. Grit is about survival in the face of calamity. And based on my experience, I would suggest to you that grit is most certainly intertwined with the movement from a self-centered existence to a God-centered existence, and that's what we call in this program, we call recovery. Grit is living life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. And grit is not about one's coin collection or special privileges. You know, let's talk about grit and determination and willingness to work 
every day among some folks you may or may not know on this vision line. I know I won't mention names, you know, in particular, but I know this one woman in program uh, who nearly died over 30 years ago in this disease. Today, she's the mother of, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 kids. Who knows? She probably has lost count. So full of grit and determination to carry a message of hope. She doesn't have, this woman doesn't seem, seem to me to have, have time for self-pity, selfishness, or apathy for too long. See, those are the luxuries of the uninitiated and spiritually disconnected. You stay in this pathway determined. It's hard to carry the you know, self-pity, selfishness, or apathy fear for too long. I know another person who was once 700 pounds. You may know this guy. His parents were nuts by his own admission. Hey, your, yours would be too if most of your family was brutally exterminated by, by the Nazis during the Holocaust. I've heard his story. By his own admission, this guy couldn't wipe his own behind. Sorry for the graphics, but it's just his words. Imagery is important. Yet this man was saved from the scrap heap. Now, I don't sit in worship of this guy. He's just another, another bozo. But now, what, what I do, what I am amazed about God's handiwork, because he tries to help others. He deliberately tries to help others so that they can deliberately, with intention, take the required spiritual medicine to get well. And in so doing, he remains alive. This guy's alive physically and spiritually. I mean, other than that, he's a real dud. But I mean, but I mean, he's a he's a good guy. He's 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 helping people, and that's 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 the stuff that's amazing to me. And I know more than a few others on this line right now, perhaps, who have faced personal bouts with cancer, the death of loved ones, irreparably broken relationships, divorce financial hardships, all manner of horrible and unthinkable calamity. Yet here they are, awakened, peaceful, happily sober today, full of life, of maximum service to the God of their understanding and to others. All is a gift of becoming willing to take deliberate action and persevere, never giving up. I'm going to read to you from page 51 in We Agnostics because I think it drives this home for me about the consciousness of the presence of God. When many, <clears throat> when many hundreds of people are able to say that the consciousness and the presence of God is today the most important fact of their lives, they present a powerful reason why one should have faith. You know, in the interest of addressing this, 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 this idea of being deliberate and not careless in our pursuit of the steps, let me, let, me, let me dive in a little bit and comment for a bit on step three, because I, I think it's an interesting thing. Um, and, and in Val's, I hope I don't, I don't uh, uh, this isn't in bad taste, um, speaking about uh, Dunkin' Donuts, but it, the story involves the place Dunkin' Donuts. And you know what? I go to AA and they talk about alcohol, so I, I don't feel too bad about talking about this stuff. But I, I understand there can be sensitivities. But anyways, it just involves Dunkin' Donuts. So I go to an AA meeting every Saturday morning at 6.30 a.m. without fail. And if you've ever been to an AA meeting, it, it won't come as a big surprise that they, they often have donuts and coffee and cigarette breaks outside and the like. And for those of you on the line that are two-hatters, you know what I'm talking about. Remember, the, these, these folks are abstaining from alcohol. That's the substance that was killing them. And so they, they, they have other things they do. 
So it's been my turn to lead this meeting. I get the honor and privilege of leading this meeting. And we, and we commit to 12 weeks, 12 consecutive weeks, which ironically are aligned with the 12 steps, right? And we discuss a step a week. Um, and, and, uh, and I've been doing it for the past, uh, I just did uh, step three yesterday. And so one of my privileges in leading the meeting is to, I get to pick up the donuts. And then, and then I get the privilege of bringing them and I get to lead the meeting. So yesterday my lead was on step three. Step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So I show up to Dunkin' Donuts and it's very early in the morning because I want to get there early. And I see two young guys in there. And, and kind of disheveled, you know, these two young guys are disheveled. And I go in there, it's just two of them. And I go in there and they're, they're seated. And, and I could, I, honestly, I could smell, I could smell the alcohol. I, my guess, I don't know for a fact, but they were drinking all night. And, you know, they do what you do. They show up at Dunkin' Donuts early in the morning. So uh, I'm picking up uh, boxes and boxes of donuts. There's a lot of people. It's a very attractive meeting, right? We get on close to 100 people at this meeting. Crazy, 6.30 on a Saturday morning, but it's kind of neat. So they take notice. Like, uh, you know, one guy says, hey, where are you going with all those donuts? The young guy says. And I said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to a meeting. A meeting? What, what kind of meeting are you going to at 6.30 in the morning on a Saturday of all times? And I said, I'm going to uh, an AA meeting, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. So the, they, they kind of smile at each other. And the one guy says, oh, those, oh, you mean those, those self-righteous uh, bleepity bleeps? You know, he's a little bit, a little bit uh, edgy. And I, I said, oh, you've met my friends. <laughs> you met my friends. Okay, you know them. No, but I, I said, yeah, you know, I'm going. Well, the other guy, you know, they're, they're kind of lighthearted. But the other guy, he says, you know what? He says, interesting. He says, where's that meeting? I said, yeah, it's just right around the corner here. It's over at, you know, on this street over here. And he says, oh, yeah. He goes, you know what? One guy says, you know what? I, I, I think I've made a decision here. I'm, I'm going to go to that meeting this morning. I mean, it looks like you're bringing a bunch of donuts over there. I mean, you know, I, I probably could use that meeting, to be honest with you. I said, hey, we'd love to have you. It'd be great. Why don't you, why don't you come on over? You can follow me over if you want. So, uh, you know, uh, at that point, uh, uh, you know, you got – Two guys. One guy thinks we're a bunch of self-righteous bleepity bleeps. But the other guy, he sees, he's, he's ready to make an important decision. And he says, uh, he says, I'd like to come to that meeting. Yes, in fact, I'm sure of it. I, I've made the decision here and now to come to that meeting. And I said, great. I said, by the way, the donuts are free. Now, here's my question. You got two guys with differing opinions about attending an AA meeting, a 12-step meeting. One declares he wants nothing to do with it. His buddy, he's all in. He makes an important decision to attend the meeting. And the meeting was going to take place in about 30 minutes. Well, 30 minutes later, I start the meeting. And simple math would tell you that there were two men at the Dunkin' Donuts 30 minutes previous. And now, guess how many sat with frosting on their face and whiskey on their breath when my meeting started? Can you venture a guess? Still two. Two men sat there when the meeting started. Why? Because I said the one guy merely made a decision to come to the meeting. I didn't say that he took the subsequent deliberate action required to attend. No, I suspect he still had uh, frosting stains on his shirt and alcohol on his breath. 
See, most people think that the third step says that we turn our will and our life, lives over the care of God, but it doesn't say that at all. No, what it says is that we make a decision to turn my will and life over to the care of God. So the first word that needs to be understood is the word decision, which is defined as making up one's own mind. For any decision to mean anything at all, it always requires further action. If you've made the decision to get up in the morning, like Melanie, maybe you're out in the West Coast somewhere, especially, and you, you made a decision, and, and you're listening to my words this morning, you followed it up with subsequent deliberate action, and here you are. Well, it's the same thing with the steps. We, we, we merely make a decision. Now we've got to follow it up with action. If we decide to make up our own mind to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand God, that decision alone will not turn it over. We have to take the actions necessary to turn it over. See, the first three deliberate steps in the practical program of action are designed merely as conclusions of the mind to bring us to the point where we become willing to turn our will and our lives over to the care of our higher power. And Melanie started so brilliantly in identifying, you know, our problem. We got this in step one. We got, do, do we have this thing? Are we, do we have this alcoholic mind? Do, do we have the twofold nature of this disease talked about in the doctor's opinion? Do we have the allergy of the body, this physical manifestation that amplifies the desire for more when it enters our system, that intensifies our desire for more? We never know which way it's going to go. There are, would you believe there are alcoholics that can stop at times? It's just they, they can't predict. Are they going to be able to stop after two? Or are they going to stop after 20? They never know which way it's going to go, nor do you and I. So if you're on the line, you say, well, I don't know that I, that I qualify. See, I, I've been able to stop. Yeah, me too. I just couldn't stay stopped. And I never knew which way it was going to go. I'm just like an alcoholic. I'm just like a heroin addict. They, some heroin addicts, would you believe, they can stop for a time. They just don't know which way it's going to go. Will the physical manifestation result in intensification and amplification for the desire for more? They don't know how it's going to go. Can't predict. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. But it's not your biggest problem. The biggest problem, perhaps, is the, 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 the mental twist that Dr. Silkworth talks about, this obsession of the mind, that even when the, when the substance is not in your system, it's going to drive you back for some reason. You're obsessed to go back to it again and again and again. And unless you have an entire, complete, thorough, deliberate, deliberately uh, uh, done, if you will, spiritual awakening, there's very little hope of your recovery. So you can make a decision to be on this line as you have, or maybe listening to the recording. Bravo, here's a trophy. I'm being a little bit facetious, right? No, I'm glad you're here. There's great hope in being here. But it's not going to do anything if not followed up with deliberate action. And if you follow it the way I did for five years, carelessly, dabbling in the steps, sticking, sticking your toe in the pool, Every so often jumping in the pool, then getting out, drying yourself off, munching on some Doritos, you know, in and out, in and out, jumping around in a, you know, the, jumping around the steps, 
not in sequence, rather doing it in a way out of order, trying to use the steps, trying to use the tools to feel better in which to get abstinent, you're, you're gaming the system. You're playing the system and it doesn't work. And I'll be the first to tell you, based on my experience, it doesn't work. So the, we make though, you know, in the, in the, in the step one, we, we understand our problem. Uh, if our problem, it says selfishness, self-centeredness, that is the root of our problem. So if my problem is selfish, then my solution is going to be selfless. And the solution, if lack of power is my problem, then obviously access to this power that I cannot bring about of my own accord, that, but somehow in taking these steps in sequence deliberately with intention and purpose, uh, with desperation, you can have a spiritual waking that will drive out that obsession. It will do nothing for your allergy, but you won't want the food anymore. And you won't want the food anymore happily, peacefully, with serenity. Now, the first three deliberate steps are designed as conclusions of the mind, and they bring us to the point where we become willing to turn our will and our lives over to the care of our higher power. Steps four through nine are how we turn our will and our life over, by removing the blocks that prevent us from actually doing so. And the last three steps are how we keep our will and our lives turned over to God indefinitely. So steps four through nine, if there is any magic, and there's not, but if there is any, any uh, you know, profound alteration, inward restructuring, it's going to happen when we get to the point where we're ready and we've, we've taken those conclusions of the mind in steps one, two, and three. We do the work in four through nine, and we experience a change as we transition from nine to ten. And then 10, 11, and 12 keeps us right with God, with ourselves, and with others, as long as we remain in fit spiritual condition by just staying on this pathway and not treat this program as an 11-step program because there's a 12-step. So here I am, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Now I'm going to try. I don't know. I might be failing, but I'm trying. I'm trying to carry this message to the compulsive readers and, and to, to the best of my ability to practice these principles in all my affairs. So after a period of time, though, our ego or self-will might begin to reassert itself again. And because of our humanness, you'll never have an experience, you know, outside a human experience. You are woefully human. The God job is taken. You need not apply. So we fall short in maintaining perfect spiritual focus in all our thoughts and activities. And that's why when it says we are not saints, point is we're, we're I'm, I'm willing today god i am willing today today to grow along spiritual lines please guide me help me to set aside everything i thought i knew about running the show because you you take the you take the reins for a while god after all you couldn't screw it up any more than i was <laughs> so how about you take the reins for a while maybe the rest of my life if if i don't take my will back and that is why, even if we have worked the first nine steps to the best of our ability, once, you know, we've done it once and, and we're living in steps 10, 11, and 12, we still need to eventually go back to step one, maybe every day, and begin the step cycle again and again for deeper awakenings and further growth 
you know, in other areas where we have God blocked off that we may not be currently aware of. So for me, the dishonesty, uh, you know, fin- financial mismanagement, that I take my will back all the time. I'm scared, God. I'm scared. What can I do to control this thing? What can I do to control this thing? Oh, yeah. No, I'm recovered by the grace of God. I'm recovered. The obsession's been lifted, but I'm still human. And I still need to um, go back and work these steps. And the beauty of it for me is if I can deliberately, with intention, with purpose, if I can, it doesn't, God doesn't grade me in how I'm carrying the message. I don't believe so. Like, uh, like, you know what, Larry, tell you what, you do a good job on the vision call this morning. I think I'll give you another day of abstinence. I, I don't view it that way. That's not the God of my understanding. I, it's a merciful God. This God has changed my life. So whether or not I carry the message, I couldn't carry the message perfectly if I tried. So I don't even try. I just care, It just flows. I was on my knees before, not peacefully. I was actually reading Pass It On. That was, I kind of first, I said, oh, wait, I better, get, I better get on the line here. I texted Melanie. I said, oh, I better do a sound check. But I was very peaceful, and I wasn't thinking too much. I don't worry too much, not too much preparation. Because I know I, I was on my knees, and I said, God, you know, speak through me. As you always do, thank you. Just reinforcing my desire for God to continue to change me. And then, and then I go, and I carry this message. So, um, you know, the two other words that are important to understand are the words will and lives in, in step three. The words will and lives are concepts way over my head and way too large to relate to or comprehend. But these words for me can, can, can better be understood by explaining that, that my will is my thinking, what, what motivates me, and that my life is all the actions that I've taken up to this moment my thinking and my actions. And that explanation makes the words a little bit more down to earth for a guy like me, um, easier to comprehend. So the third step can then be reworded as saying that I decide to take the actions necessary to turn my motivations, my thinking, and my actions over to the care of God as I understand him. And also what motivates me is going to drive my thinking. And my thinking directs my actions because all action is born in thought. So I need to go deeper than just acting my way into right thinking. For me, that's how I view it. If my motivation and thinking is God-directed, I will make the right decisions. Whether it seems that way at the time or not, then the actions taken will also be right. When I ask God to guide my thinking, you know what I do? I do what, what, what I heard someone say once. Larry, when you ask for God with the right heart in mind, when you ask for God to direct your thinking, you know what you can do, buddy? You can presume that he has. You can go forward with the presumption that he has. You don't need to question and analyze. You've asked for this God of your understanding, this all-powerful creative intelligence, you know, uh, to uh, change your thinking, guide your motivations, then go ahead and presume that he has and go forward and take action and know that you're on good footing there to make the right decisions. I don't, an- I don't overanalyze it. But if my motivation and thinking are self-directed without, you know, without re- asking for God's guidance, I'll usually make the wrong decisions, even though I may not realize it at the time. Then the actions taken will probably also be wrong. 
So again, all action is born in thought. So are my thoughts deliberate? Are they intentional or are they careless? Careless meaning without awareness. Kind of just shoddy, you know, not thinking, not aware. You know, it's interesting. Most, well, more Americans are likely to single out natural talent. Natural talent is the best predictor of success. But talent, see, I believe is overrated in our society. Really what matters in the long run is sticking with things and working daily to get better at them. You know, if you, if you turn on, let's say, a, a sports broadcast, for example, you're going to invariably hear the word talent within a minute or so. You'll hear the word talent on some sports broadcast. And, and we just love to anoint our most successful athletes as prodigiously uh, talented. But, uh, but I, I offer to you that that's a misunderstanding. And I say that because what psychologists have discovered, and I'm going to draw this right back into what we're talking about, what psychologists have discovered is that excellence is very mundane. It's very ordinary. It's a thousand little things, each of which you could practice, each of which you could improve upon. You put them together, these mundane, ordinary things, thousands of little things. You put them together, like with these steps in totality, and it's dazzling. It is dazzling what God can accomplish. Passion and perseverance working these steps in sequence in a deliberate fashion is going to allow you to cross the bridge to freedom. And unlike natural talent, the grit it takes to work these steps is absolutely teachable. It's right there in the big book. You don't have to have a big bank statement, nor do you have to have a big IQ. This isn't just for the, for the intellectually gifted. I can assure you that. People with grit, there are people with grit on this line, but they don't come from anything. They don't come with a, with a silver spoon in their mouth, but they exhibit four common qualities. They have interest in this. They practice to get better. They have a sense of purpose born of desperation, perhaps, and they have hope. Oh, we have hope. Because I'll read to you from There is a Solution on page 17. It says on page 17, the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. There's tremendous hope in that. Tremendous hope that these people that work this deliberately have a way out that they can absolutely agree, it works. It definitely works. So rather than skipping around, they deepen their interests, they deliberately practice by working on their, their, their weaknesses on these steps with feedback from people who have traveled this road. See, people with grit are other-centered, thinking about how their work is important to people other than themselves. So in the midst of their challenges, in the midst of their calamities, they're resilient. They have a certain sense of resiliency. They get beat up and knocked down and they stand back up because it's the only place you can go when you're on the floor. When they're knocked down, they get up again. You know, I've never met someone who says, because I was born in this situation, this calamity, I, I don't have to work hard. If you're on the line this morning, you should be smiling. You know why I say that? 
You should be smiling because you're in this lifeboat right now. You're on this line. You're in this lifeboat. We were all on the Titanic, and it was sinking. And together we jumped into this lifeboat. And some of you may have a bag, a cellophane bag in your hand, but you're in the lifeboat. And you might as well put it down because the rest of us are, are not putting it down. Look around. No one else has the bag in their hand. Put it down. And now together, guess what? We must row. And you can let others row. You can let me row if you'd like to. If you're gripped by fear, apathy, hoping that our rowing will save your life with little to no effort required of you. But I'm here to tell you that if there is a secret to this thing, it's to row. Row your boat. Whether it's storming or calm. And you can't row your boat while you've got your hands and your fists in a, in a cellophane bag or a bakery box. You're on this lifeboat. You should be smiling. Row your boat. And today you may find you'll have a life beyond your wildest dreams. And now that we've made conscious contact with the God of our understanding, you see, we've received the greatest gift of this program, a spiritual awakening. God is now guiding us in such a way that it is indeed miraculous. This life-changing experience comes suddenly to some as in a spiritual experience and gradually others, you know, jokers like me, gradually. But let's see what we can learn about this miraculous event. You know, when we look at, uh, in the appendix on page 569, uh, five, 567, the fourth, uh, fourth edition, because this, this, this appendix was written after, on the Spiritual Awakening, it was written after the publication of the first printing of this book in April of 1939. And, and it talks about having had a spiritual experience as a result of these steps. But the good thing is, I'm not going to read it to you, but I'm going to tell you that they realized that while some people had a sudden and profound spiritual awakening that happened suddenly, quickly, that most of us had a spiritual awakening of the educational variety. In other words, it took, it, it took place over time. And Bill was impressed by this book that Ebby Thatcher gave him while he still was in the hospital, Towns Hospital, when he was still suffering from this disease. And it was called William James, the Harvard professor, is Harvard psychologist, early psychologist. He wrote a book about the varieties of religious experience. And it talked about some of these people. And there were people like you and me that had a slow, more, you know, uh, kind of sequential spiritual transformation that happened over time by taking action rather than some profound sudden deal. But we all get to the same place. You know, we all get to the same place. And, you know, maybe that you'll find um, this to be the case also. Your life begins to change, but gradually rather than suddenly, you may not be able to point to a specific, specific experience that brought about the change, but the spiritual awakening has occurred nonetheless. It says, and I quote, the term spiritual experience, spiritual awakening, and of course, uh, Dr. Silkwith and the doctor's opinion called it a psychic change, are used many times in this book, which upon careful reading shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery, to drive out that very obsession to eat, has manifested itself among us in many different forms. Don't close yourself off from that. Remain hopeful and open. A spiritual awakening is nothing more than a psychic change that, among other things, eliminates our obsession to eat. So, so Bill Wilson's rapid conversion experience at Towns Hospital 
you know, was, was something different. And some people may have that, but I didn't. That's all there is to it. If you've made contact with God, the God of your understanding, and try to follow your higher power's guidance, and you do it in a deliberate fashion, you, in fact, already are having a spiritual awakening. You're now living in the sunlight of the spirit. You know, it reads, uh, the big book authors tell us what we must do to enlarge our new God consciousness. On the top of page 89, it says, practical experience shows nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is the 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. See, when we work with others, our lives change. Bless them, change me. Bless them, change me. Like it was said before, we don't help another alcoholic because they're sick. We help another alcoholic because we're sick. And part of our program of recovery is that we need to be helping others. And, and what happens is it talks about on page 89, life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up among, about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. See, that's, that's just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish up here and read the very, I, when I pulled out this book, Pass It On, this, this AA-approved literature. Here, here's a guy, this, this, and some of you can relate to this story. So this is a guy, a letter written to the, the AA General Service Office. <clears throat> and I quote, he says, I'll never forget the first time I met Bill Wilson. I was a couple of months sober and so excited, so thrilled to actually meet the co-founder that I gushed all over him with what my sobriety meant to me and my underlying gratitude for, this, for his starting AA. And when I ran down, he took my hand in his, and he said simply, pass it on. So what I tell you is, pass it on. Pass it on. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Larry, so much. You offered such an exciting example of your experience, strength, and hope. The research and the history and the science that you put into that is just really, really interesting to me. And, and your service here, the vision for you and your experience, strength, and hope is just, just priceless. Thank you so much for that. And we'll ask Larry if he would leave his contact information at the conclusion of this recording. Um, so stay with us for that. But for now, we will open up the lines to those that have questions about Larry's presentation this morning. Who would like to ask Larry a question? Press star 1 to unmute your phone. Any questions this morning for Larry about his presentation? Hi, good morning. It's Oshana Kay from Maryland. Can I ask a question? Sure. Let's check to see if there's anyone else just before we move on, though, with yours, Shoshana. Thank you. Anyone else? Reggie. I hear Reggie, and I hear Julie. Julie, what's your first, first initial of your last name? Jamie W. San Diego. F as in Frank. F as in Frank, and I got you too, Jamie W. Thanks, Julie F. Anyone else? Sarah M. Sarah M. 
And anyone else? Okay, that sounds good. Hi, Shoshana Kay. You want to go with your question? Sure. Hi. Thank you both of you for your service always. So inspiring and helpful. And I just had a quick question of when um, we're working with others. That's how it ended off. Beautiful qualification. Um, sometimes when we're working with others, the, the people that we're working with are really not ready. And we've discussed this in other meetings um, about they may, may need to just go back and eat some more food again. And how do we do that without being crushed and really down and out? That's my, how do we, as a sponsor, I guess, turn them back to the food if that's what's needed? Yeah, well, th oh, thank you so much for your question. Yeah, it could be a crushing blow. Um, and I, I know when I, when I first started sponsoring, um, and for a good long while, to be honest, Shoshana, such a great question, I would feel so uh, uh, rejected. And, I mean, I'm offering you, I'm doing it. And I'm offering you a solution. And I, I often, looking back, wanted it more than they wanted it for themselves. And it was such a blow to my own ego when they didn't do it. I mean, I, I, I tell you that I, you know, I might have told you then, no, it's not so much my ego. I just, I just want, I want to, you know, to help them. But I have to remember that the God job is taken, Shoshana. And I don't get to serve in that capacity as much as I want. It's like being a parent. I so want Beth to just be happy and content and make good choices and do all things. But I, I can't live her life for her. She has a higher power and it, it certainly isn't me. But the big book also gives me some instructions here that that's been helpful to me in the chapter working with others. We've got a whole chapter, as you know, and it says, you know, it's one of the things among, uh, you know, uh, if he is not interested, I'm reading from page 95 in the fourth edition. If he's, in, if he's not interested in your solution, Shoshana, wow, my book says Shoshana. If he's not interested in your solution, Shoshana, if he expects you uh, to act only as a banker for his financial difficulties or a nurse for his sprees or I'll add a dietitian or a therapist or, you know, fill in the blank, you may have to drop him until he changes his mind. This he may do after he gets hurt some more, you know, and if he thinks, uh, going a paragraph beyond, if he thinks he can do the job in some other way, while he still has frosting in his hair, I just added that, um, or prefers some other spiritual approach, you know, that's fine. We have no monopoly. Encourage him to follow his own conscience. conscience. We have no monopoly on God. We merely have an approach that worked with us. But point out that we alcoholics have much in common and that you would like in any case to be friendly. Let it go at that. See, I, I literally follow those instructions. I can offer uh, empathy. Man, oh, man, I, I boy, this, this has got to be so hard to be in and out of the food, yet trying to use the steps and perhaps the tools in which to feel better and feel ready to put your heroin down. I, I remember what that feels like. But just understand, this is between you and your higher power, the higher power of your own understanding. I'm just a guide here. I, I, I often like to tell people, I just got here on a, on a major losing streak. So <laughs> let's, let's, just, let, let's just be clear that when it says that, you know, when we place our reliance and trust on, you know, on a human being rather than God, you know, we're, I'm paraphrasing, we're, we're probably making a mistake there. 
you know. Um, so, hey, you know, I, and I might say, Shoshana, hey, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> I can't go. I was no 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 other club will have me. So I gotta stay on the theme of recovery. <laughs> but 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 um, but at this point, you know what? What I would suggest is is go out and research a bit. Do some research and see if you can figure this thing out. You know, you, you might it might be worth it. And, uh, and who knows, you might be able to find someone else that might be more helpful that God may use in a way to be more helpful to you. Um, but I, I, I'm, I think what's best now is for you to move on. And when I treat it that way, then it's easier for me to handle. I don't, I, does that help a little bit? Sure. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Shoshana Kay, for the question. Reggie O, your question, please. Hi, good morning. Thank you, Melanie. And Larry, thank you. I got, uh, wow, what, that was so great. Thanks so much. I really got a lot from what you said. I love the, love the comprehensive way you pulled it together. Um, you know, I, I, I've uh, gone back and was doing some work, have been doing some work in the third step this past week. And in um, one sentence stood out for me, um, really stood out for me. And it really, it really came, caused me to come to an abrupt halt. And it was, uh, we thought we thought well before taking this step that we could uh, that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to God. And that made me think of the and you know the prayer itself says you know I offer myself to you, and that the step is you know made a decision which is quite powerful. But when I when I read uh, that sentence you know and we thought well before taking this step that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to god uh that that that's that's a bit, that to me is a very potent being ready and uh that that all in as powerful as a decision is uh, i just wondered if you could just add enlighten me a little bit about um about that oh you bet oh it's so good to hear your voice reggie thanks for the question um yeah, so with step three, it's it's an interesting phenomena, you know, here that what we're doing is we learn, of course, that we're powerless in step one. We learn in step two that, you know, that that in order to solve this dilemma, we're going to need access to that power. So based on our understanding of the problem and the solution to that problem, you know, we now move on to step three, which answers the question, how are we going to bring that solution to light? And I know for me, uh, so it says, you know, step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. We're just merely making a decision to move on with the rest of the steps. Um, and so, you know, uh, we're making an affirmative declaration to move on with the rest of the steps. That's it. A declaration is merely something you say out loud. You know, we, and it, it says we made a decision. Notice it doesn't say we, it doesn't say we turned our will and our lives over to God. We merely made a decision. And if we, if we look at that affirmative declaration found on 63, the second line, it's going to say, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And, you know, I, I would, here's a breakdown I would offer you. God, I offer myself to thee. So, God, I'm giving myself to you. I don't pretend to know what I'm giving you because, frankly, I, I don't know who you are. And, in fact, I don't even know who I am. So, I, I, you know, I'm not even sure. But if, if you are, take the reins, take the reins for a while. <clears throat> Let's face it. You know, what's the risk? 
you probably couldn't manage my life worse than I had. So if you're there, uh, take over for a bit. To do with me and build with me as thou wilt. So whatever you put me here for, show me. Because I'm lost. I'm without direction. Relieve me of the bondage of self. Bondage to be a prisoner. I'm a prisoner of myself. I'm a prisoner of my own mind, my own perception. When I run the show, it's a train wreck, Reggie. But I can't help trying to run the show. So relieve me of the bondage of self so that I can better do your will. So I can let you do what I'm asking you to do. And it says, remove my difficulties. Not so I can feel better while I continue to wreak havoc in my life and those around me. No, take away my difficulties so that victory over them, I may bear witness, you know, to see. I may see those that I would help, see where I can be helpful of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. So rather than being of help my way, with my judgments, my BS, where I always have some selfish motive. Let me be of help in a way that you see fit. Very, very powerful declaration. May I do thy will always. Right? So th th this is the beginning of turning over, saying this declaration. And, and all I do is I say that third step, uh, third step prayer every morning. Um, just every morning I say it, whether I feel like it or not. If I can't take 15 seconds uh, for my recovery every morning. Lord knows I took more than that uh, for my disease. So I think, I think for me, just wrapping up, I would say that, you know, not to, not to overanalyze it, but just to move on with the rest of the steps, even if you've done them a hundred times before, maybe there was something missing, something, you know, maybe God is taking me, maybe I needed those five years of struggle uh, to get to a point, point where I was thoroughly ready to move on with the actions in four through four through nine. So I hope that helps Reggie. No, yeah, that was really a great help. And would you say that Larry, that, you know, that sentence after that, that we thought well before taking this step that we could at last utterly abandon ourselves to God. Is that, is that utter abandonment that, okay, I'm willing to do the rest of the work. That, that's the way I interpret it. Yeah. Cause I, I think sometimes Reggie, when I read those words, when I first read those words, I thought, oh, okay, everything was going good, and now i got to have this God thing figured out. But the truth is, for me, Reggie, I didn't know who God was. I didn't know who I was. So all I'm being asked, when someone told me, Larry, don't, you know, you're just making a decision to move on with the steps. Yes, think, think long and hard about your willingness to deliberately work those action steps in sequence if you're ready the abandonment to God is, the, is, is ready to get out your axe. You know, you're an athlete, Reggie. Get, get your, you know, you, you've spent many hours over decades of doing physical things that you'd rather not be doing. Okay, get your axe out. Get, get out there on the court and get ready to start running. Even if it doesn't feel good, come rain or shine, you know, you do the deal. And then watch what happens. Watch what God does for you. So... Yeah, no, that thank you. That's, that's helpful. It does. Thank you, you so much. You bet. Thank you, Adil. Julie F., your question, please, to Larry. Hi, this is Julie F. I just want to um, thank you for doing service today. I will um, be honest, I didn't hear the whole uh, lead. I just came on. Um, not too long ago, but my question is, and if it was covered in a part I didn't hear, um, that's fine. 
but what spiritual practices um, or daily practices do you do to maintain your sobriety, to maintain um, living in the solution? That's a great question, Julie. Thanks for asking. What type of spiritual practices? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you the, very, the, the biggest, most profound spiritual practice that I do every day, every day, 365 days a year, unless I have laryngitis, um, and even then I probably could text, um, is carry this message to a still suffering uh, compulsive overeater. It is the, it is the most glorious thing. That, it, that it, I, I never feel, Julie, I never feel more spiritual. I could sit there and pray. You could, you know what's funny? I used to go off. I've got to tell you, I'm going to digress just a minute. I used to go off before I ever came into program, and I would travel from Chicago to Maine in the winter to go over all my goals, all Larry's goals, and all Larry's ambitions, and all my action plans. And it was the most peaceful, wonderful thing. And you know what was, what, what was the common denominator? It was all about Larry. And, it was, and there was lots of prayer about Larry and lots of analysis and contemplation about Larry. I wanted to vomit up Larry. I mean, <laughs> you know, it was really, really just, uh, it, was a, it was a Larry festival. And, um, and that was enough to make me just, you know, sick. Okay. But that's what I, that's where my mindset was. Today, and it was not the least bit spiritual in any sense, really, because I, cause I thought, Julie, I thought, Julie, that my external world, you know, the beautiful beaches of Maine, and the, it was actually wintertime, um, and, and just the, 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 the silence, and I, and, I, and I envisioned myself as like, uh, you know, as like, uh, I don't know, some, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson or, you know, or someone going off. So something that I could tell in my story years from now to my grandchildren, and it was about the least spiritual thing there was, looking back, truthfully. It was a waste of time because it was all about Larry. Now, today, I could be in my pajamas, as I am, um, on the line with you guys, and it, I feel so filled with the Spirit, so filled with the Spirit. That is the most, so the prayers, that, sure, I pray every day. I'm, I'm on my knees, and I, you know, I can tell you specific prayers. But I, my fear would be, and it's not really a fear, my, my concern would be, it's like, ah, oh, well, if I pray like Larry prays, maybe if he has anything that I want, I'll get what Larry has. You know what the best thing you could do? Go, resolutely turn your thoughts to someone else you could help today. Turn your thoughts to someone else you could help. And then go help them. Don't commiserate about your problems. and That's not going to help them. You know, go, go turn your thoughts to someone else you can help and go help them. And, and, wa and watch how God infuses you with the spirit. So I, I hope that helps a little bit, Julie. I'm sure you do a lot of those things. But that I'll pass. Thank you, Julie F. Jamie W., your question, please. For Larry. Star one, Jamie. Jamie, are you with us? Well, Larry, let's move to Sarah M. then and see how it comes for Jamie to come back. Sarah M. Hi, Larry. Hello, this is Sarah M. Jamie. This is Sarah M. Oh, good. Hi, thanks. Hi, Sarah. Go ahead. Um, 
so really what you spoke about that resonated the most with me was about grit. Um, and like, I definitely, I definitely feel like I have one of those, like I, I know I'm a really, really determined person. Like I don't give up on things easily. Um, but when it comes to doing 12-step stuff, like I know I'm in it for the long haul, but in the day-to-day stuff where I really, like, I feel like lose my grit is if I'm going to do, like, one of the things I'm, I set out to do every day, like, read upon awakening, and it just, you know, some days the whatever I'm practicing feels really rich, and some days what I'm practicing feels very empty and very mechanical, and I feel very allergic to doing things in a mechanical way, and then I'll skip it or do it mechanically just to get through it. And I just wondered if you had any experience or advice about those times when you're going to engage with something that feels really, like, superficial and, like, you're just doing it as a rule as opposed to something that nourishes and supports you. Yeah, I, I do. That That's a great question. Thanks for asking that. You know, I, I talked a little bit about, um, you know, what these, these psychologists, these researchers, one of, one of my favorite, uh, off topic, off topic, just a little bit, but on, on, on point with your question, is this uh, psychologist that's done, I won't name her, but um, she's done some phenomenal work. She's from the University of Pennsylvania. And I only bring it up because you brought up grit, because I did mention grit as it relates to our program. And again, what she discovered through extensive research, and she wrote a book about it, is the excellence in the mundane, in the ordinary. So it's, it's a thousand little boring things, a thousand little boring things, each of which you could practice, each of which you could improve upon, and you put them together like, you know, this deliberate action with these steps. And then the dazzling stuff that God does uh, comes later. I think, of, I think of it like this. There's, there's someone right now who's a... Um, who has the potential to be an Olympic something, an Olympic swimmer. Let's go with a swimmer. And, I, and maybe they, they swam pretty well their whole life, but, but you know, maybe it's about the, as boring as boring could be. They just do it. They can do it well, kind of the way you can do certain things very well. But they're, they're lap after lap after lap after lap, all in the interest, very mundane and ordinary. They've been doing it since they were in the second grade, and now they are approaching – you know, uh, 18, 19, 20, and in the Olympics, uh, the next Olympics, Summer Olympics might be a possibility for them. Well, they did all those deliberate actions, and none of them were particularly exciting because the races that they won, maybe those were exciting, the sense of accomplishment, but even then, it was just swimming in their lane, staying in their lane, doing those mechanical things that they do so well but are very ordinary and very maybe slightly boring but they just do it well. Well, you got to, I, I love the imagery. I often talk about chopping my wood. Nothing fun about chopping wood, but there's, I can get better at it, the technique of chopping firewood. And I take my ax out and I just begin to chop and I'm not the strongest guy in the world. And I'm getting up there in years a little bit here, but you know what? Maybe that 20 year old, you know, he or she, they can, they can just swipe and swipe and swipe and they don't need as many uh, strokes of the ax but I can get to the same place by just doing it. So for me, it's just a reminder. There's no, there's no tricks here, no secrets. It's just 
perseverance, resilience, sticking through the ordinary and the mundane, having the resilience and the steadfastness. You know, again, I'll pick on Melanie because she's just so very easy to pick on. This woman gets up every morning. I can't imagine she feels great every morning. She's probably like me. Some mornings she wakes up and it's like, ugh, you know, and other mornings. Now, we, we have gratitude. We're on the lifeboat. I mean, come on. But, I mean, you just do the same things. They, I can't think that she gets up every morning, if my experience is any indication, with complete excitement every day. You know why I know she doesn't? Because she's human. There's going to be days where she's not feeling fully connected, just like I don't. But she does the deal. She chops her wood every morning to the best of her ability. And some days she feels great exuberance like I do for, you know, having an impact and, and feeling great to be on this lifeboat. And other days we just kind of, we kind of puddle, piddle along, you know, but we just do it. So I don't know. Does that help a little bit? I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I guess you're just saying that it's like, regardless of how you feel about it, try and find a quality of engagement that, that works for yeah. you. It used to right, you know, it used to feel feel right to go out and, and go buy a dozen donuts and begin to consume them one through twelve. That 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 that's where my feelings took me. My feelings are not facts. My feelings are uh, they're they're just uh, they'll you know they'll, they'll change. Just wait, they'll change. So yeah, I just do the deal, rain or shine. Okay. So, Thanks, Larry. Thank you so much. Sure, my pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. Jamie, are you here? Yeah, there you are. Yeah, can you hear yeah. your voice? Yes, yeah, your question. No problem. That, yeah, it happens. Uh, your question, please, for Larry. Thank you, too, so much for your um, your service this morning. Larry, in what way were you not deliberate? And if you had a sponsor at the time when you were not deliberate, how did they respond? Oh, good question. Okay, so, well, since I became recovered, as the result of these steps, by the grace of God, I've been deliberate. I've been deliberate. So I, I, I can't say that I've had a sponsor since that time where, you know, I haven't felt deliberate and, you know, like, like as if I'm into the food or into, you know, all kinds of, I go in hiding or something. It doesn't happen anymore by the grace of God, by the grace of God in these steps. But I can't speak to it before that happened, before that miracle that comes by working these steps. Um, so how was I careless? Well, I was careless because it was like I was going off to Maine, the story where I was going off to Maine. And I was thinking, I thought a lot about Larry. Not, not always good thoughts about Larry, but rest assured, I was always thinking about Larry. Larry in relation to you, what you didn't do that you should have done. Lots of judgment, dripping in judgment of you, dripping in judgment of situations, circumstances, all manner of calamity. Everything revolved around me and my thoughts Today, it's not so much like that. When we hear of moving from a self-centered existence to a God-centered or other-centered existence, that is, it's so funny. I'm on the line every morning, you know, by the grace of God, I'm on the line every morning so that I can just, you know, stay the course and be resilient and do those things. And it, it has changed. It, it has changed me so much. I'm not the man that I used to be. So in answer to your question, yeah, before this happened, um, you know, we talk about, we read uh, our namesake, Vision for You, the chapter, right? And we read page 164. Well, Jamie's crying. Jamie, I think of that song, Jamie. You probably know it. 
Um, you know, Jamie, I, I couldn't give away something I don't have. I tried to pretend I had something, but you know what? I couldn't give away something I, I didn't have. So if in those times that I attempted to sponsor someone before I had worked this practical program of action through in sequence as laid out in the big book, following those instructions precisely but not perfectly, until that time, sure, the message I carried was often one of isolation, judgment, fear-based, how could I speak to someone at that time, for me, of a complete transformation where you could be sober and peaceful and happy when that wasn't my experience? I was totally incongruent, and you can't help but express that incongruence. Even You can't hide that for long, and I couldn't. And eventually they would leave me or I would leave them. So, um, you know, today it's different for me. It's just different for me. So with that, I'll pass. I hope that helps. Thank you, Jamie W. Is there anyone else that would like to ask Larry a question about his presentation today? Star one will unmute you. Deborah. Hi, Deborah. First initial of your last name? M. M. Like Mary. Thank you. Anyone else with a question this morning? Well, go ahead, Deborah. Oops, looks like maybe somebody else I heard. Kathy Kay. Hi, Kathy Kay. Got you down, too. And I thought I heard one more. Anyone else? Marla. Marla. What's the first initial of your last name? S. S. Thank you so much. Okay, good. Deborah M., your question, please. Thank you, Larry, for your service. I have been, you know, in and out and have stayed abstinent thinking it was recovery for some time and then find out, of course, I couldn't stop, picked up in another program and doing very well in the other program. So there's an awareness of my character defects that are, you know, I'm very grateful for that and working through those steps. But tell me your comment. The last, I would say, 72 hours as I began to get really um, desperate and couldn't figure out what, what it was in this program. And I think it could be obviously step one. And I realized that I had been praying to my higher power, which I have a wonderful relationship with. I do a lot of, of traveling in that work and have seen success. But I think what I – and I don't want to be too self-looking at my navel-gazing, but – I think I was always asking for more power to do the program, asking for more power to follow a food plan. And I'm hearing from a vision, maybe something different. Maybe you can comment on that powerlessness. I was reading the 12 and 12 this morning about lack of power is my dilemma. And I think I've always just been praying for more power. So I'll leave this for you to comment. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I'll see if I can address it um, with regard to power. Well, when, and you had, you, had, you had alluded to step one, and the instructions for step one are on page 30. Now, leading up to that, we better, get a, you know, we better have a conclusion of the mind about the nature of our problem laid out in the doctor's opinion and beyond. But on page 30, it gives me a pretty, I mean, I, I can't, I couldn't write this better if I tried. It says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. 
we had this alcoholic mind, right? That we were compulsive overeaters. We had to we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step of recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. So, you know, what I take from that is, is that if I'm looking to ask for more power, you know, you can ask for lots of things to stay abstinent. I need to check my motives a little bit there because the big book from its inception, I'm not saying you have to work it this way, but it's certainly the way the big book was laid out and it is intended to be worked since it was published in 1939 is to understand what our problem is, lack of power, what is the solution to our pro- to our problem, access to that power that we learn more about in step two, we, can, we have a conclusion of the mind. And then as with any problem, how do we bring that solution to light? Now, if it told me, the way, Larry, the way to bring that solution to light is to pray for more power so that you can stay on your food plan. I'm, I'm slow, but I, I, I would, I'd go for that. That's easy. That's the cliff notes, man. I'll just start praying for more power to stay on my food plan. There's, you know, there's my step. That's it. You come to my graduation as soon as I'll wait for that power. I'll wait to be sprinkled with that pixie dust. See, for me, it never happened. Because what, what it said is when we, once we concede to our innermost selves that we are powerless and that we need, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore society, or in other words, give us access to that power, then how do we bring that solution to light? Do we pray for more power? So you can't control this, you can't change this, and you can't cure this. So the way you're going to get access to that power is by seeing, deliberately working through the actions in four through nine, and then living in steps 10, 11, and 12. Four through nine is those thousands, if you will, thousands of little mundane, ordinary things that you have to do that are not very exciting and can be painful, boring, um, you know, uh, fear-inspiring, all sorts of things, but it's the work that I need to do in order to have this change effectuated or brought about by the God of my understanding. I don't bring about the change. That's what I know today. I know that today. I'm not trying to convince you of it. I just know it for me. I don't bring about that change. I just work those thousands of mundane, ordinary steps in sequence and then watch the change unfold, like being an outside observer watching the change unfold. And the credits don't really transfer from another program, from what I've seen. I don't, I don't know why. I, I might not think it's fair, but it just doesn't. I see people that have, you know, put down alcohol, heroin, gambling, sex, sexual addiction, and they were given that reprieve, and God love them, that's wonderful, and they're in a 12-step program, and yet they're dying of untreated compulsive reading. So I don't know. i got to work these steps as laid out in the big book. So I hope that helps a little bit. With that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah M., Kathy Kay, your question, please. Thank you, Melanie, for your service. And thank you, Larry. It was great to hear you today. You said something a while ago, which I want to come back to, and that is we're all human, and we will never work this program perfectly. And, in fact, we do. Those of us who are recovered have days where we feel lots of self-pity or lots of resentment or 
some of the negativity takes a hold on us, and it takes some real work in steps 10 and 11 and 12 to pull us back to spiritual fitness. Here's my question. Um, I get a lot of outreach calls from people not yet recovered, or even some who are recovered, who say, I'll never be as recovered as other people I hear on the vision line. And they have a pessimism about them. And I, my only response to that has been, you're comparing your uh, insides to other people's outsides. But I, I, it, that doesn't do it for me. And I wondered if there's anything that you would suggest to your fellow travelers who are on the line a lot, those who speak often, that they could do to convey that all of us are human and all of us make mistakes and all of us have bad days. Because what comes out on the line is generally very positive pictures of our recovery experience. So any thoughts you have about that? Yeah, yeah, Kathy, good to hear you. Um, I do. You know, we, you get on the vision line, uh, you know, I'm like, well, we all, many of us have been to other meetings, first off, where there's not a lot of hope because people are, perhaps they're not recovering, they're, they're not recovered, being brought to that state to where the obsession is lifted. And so, yeah, I don't hear a lot of hope. Now, I may feel comfort in, in misery surrounded by other people who are, but, but yes, on the, on the vision line, you do hear a lot of hope. And for those where you mentioned, for those that's, that just look at it and say, well, that, that, that's, not, that's not a possibility for me, I would say they're right. Because, and I say that with hope and love and empathy and compassion. You know, we, if, you, you know if you believe and you're, and you're lacking any hope, you know, then, you know, all action is born in thought. So if my thought is no, never, then my actions, my, 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 my prevailing actions are going to follow that, that presumption, you know, so, so what can we do? Um, I think I, I really like, you know, how um, some people like Leah and others say, you know, we really need, she, she, I, I'm paraphrasing because she, she's like, I didn't say that. Uh, but it was, I got this sentiment way back when, which was spend plenty of time talking about, you know, what it was like, talking about the pain and the misery and the descent into the disease, because that's where people can identify in. Let's not give short shrift to that, you know, because if all you hear is, you know, is this beautiful state of uh, nirvana, you know, and that, yeah, maybe you can, you can. So I think, I think we can do a better job of definitely focusing on what it was like. You know, I know for me, I mean, my goodness, I don't forget what it was like being married and divorced twice, two liposuction surgeries at seven, eight thousand dollars a pop. Um, I should ask for a refund. They should have liposuction my brain. That's where, the, you know, where the problem was. Um, I'm being, I'm being, I'm joking, right? But um, uh, you know, busted windshields and busted dreams and all the potential in the world, all the degrees. Kathy, you know a little bit about my story. I look good on paper, but I couldn't make life work. I felt uncomfortable in my own skin. I had couldn't have intimate relationships emotionally and or physically 
because I felt so uncomfortable in my own skin, so unworthy. I was such an incongruent person. Here I am working as a psychologist, but my walk and my talk were not aligned very well. So I tried to help people, but in my heart of hearts, I knew that I was, I was uh, you know, I was just in, in total misery. I was dying a little death every day. You know, so I think we can talk about those things. And maybe, maybe over time, people will begin to see through the pain and then see the transformation of that guy. That, that's not the guy that I hear or see today. His physical packaging has changed, but, but more importantly, his emotional and spiritual packaging has changed. I think, you know, we need to offer hope. But to those who say no, never, um, I can't do much for them in the sense that, that they have to be willing to believe that a power greater than themselves could restore them to sanity, that that's a step two issue for me. If it's no, never, then they're right. It's going to be no, never. It's possible, but they are of the mindset where this God, whatever they conceive of their God, is not concerned enough about them, so they need to get a new a new conception of that higher power. I know I needed to. And I, and I talked to him about those things. So I don't know if that captures it a little bit, but thanks for the question, Kathy. Thank you, Kathy Kay. Thanks, Marla S. Your question, Marla S. Oh, hi. I'm sorry. Can you hear me okay? Uh-huh. Okay, good morning. Um, I've just been calling a couple of different people lately, kind of questioning how I um, – sponsor people and wondering if there's a more effective way to do it. Um, thanks, Larry, for your presentation. Um, I am just curious as to how much time in the beginning of your work with new people or people who are coming out of relapse, how much time and in what uh, structure does it take for you when you sponsor them when they're first putting the food down? I, I, I know I have to start with the doctor's opinion, but I also know I have to help them clarify their their trigger foods first, their red light foods, and figure out what they're not going to be eating in their plan. And um, I send them to a nutritionist because uh, I don't want to try to pretend to be a doctor or something. But how involved are you with your sponsees in the beginning as far as what you do with their food? Do you have them commit their food to you? Do you have them call you for any food changes? I'm just curious how you do that. Um, so I'll stop with that. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, great question. Thank you so much. You know, I, I kind of, I try to meet people where they are. Um, do, do I have discussions about food? I do with some people. Um, they, they generally don't commit their food to me because I'm no expert in that area. Um, I just draw out from the doctor's opinion on that talks about, you know, the fact that, you know, we, we, we have to identify, one, do we have this problem? And if we do, then we're going to have to put our alcoholic foods down hundred percent in order to benefit from this program of action. If they need to commit their foods, they need to send it. They need to, the only thing where I'm concerned with that sometimes is then that tool, the food plan becomes the program. And then for me, if I, my experience is that when I've gone down that road with someone and really focus, now I know the food has to be addressed, Right. But if I go down that road, then this can become dieting with group support. And I could become, um, regardless of my intention, I could become sort of this, this food coach. How's your food today? Are you abstinent today? 
and and you know they are they aren't are they going to be like me and lie about it or omit you know lying through omission as I did for a long period of time I try not to get into that when someone's ready I'm going to let them know what you, what I needed to do to put my heroin down entirely but I wasn't going to put the band around my arm and just take just a tiny little bit of heroin I can deal with I can I can manage that no, I wasn't going to do that, and, and that's how I address food. I don't take any, not even a little bit of my heroin, not even a little bit. So you got to figure out what your heroin is, and a good way to do it might be a nutritionist, might be talking to some others. If you need those types of boundaries where, you know, people weigh and measure and all those things, and I'm a big fan of all that stuff, just saying that if we get too focused on the food plan, this becomes uh, just addressing the physical aspect of the disease which perhaps is the least important aspect in the long run. I mean, it's important. It just, just the food has to be down. The heroin has to be down, right? End of story. Now, once they figure out that they want to use red light, yellow light, green light, great. If that helps them to conceptualize and so forth. But I have seen way too many people, if I focus too much on that, I want to crack open the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what got me well. The food plan didn't get me well. The food, the food, it just has to be down. That's, that's step zero. That's just get in the door. Now, let's rapidly, rapidly move through. I, yes, I spend an intense amount of time. There are people on the line that know that. I crack open the big book. We read it together. Now, I can't sponsor everybody, nor am I asked to, but I mean, you know, recovery is attractive. So, you know, I can't. So, you know, there's all sorts of great podcasts and great people with much more knowledge than I have that they can listen to which will coincide with the chapters in the big book. And then we can discuss those chapters and we can get, draw, you know, get to those conclusions of the mind in the first three steps. And then they've got to be willing to do the work in steps four through nine, transitioning into 10. And they will have, rarely have we seen a person fail who's thoroughly followed these steps. So that's what I do. Yes, I spent a tense amount of time. I hope that helps. It does. Can I ask one more follow-up on that or no? Sure. Okay. So, Assuming that you just kind of tell them what your experience was, and then you just presume and assume that they're going to do that and put it down. So you don't then in your follow-up time with doing doctor's opinion work and things, you don't spend time each session then talking about where you're abstinent today or did you follow your plan. You just go for it and assume they're, they're doing it, and then you just assume they're going to do the work with you. And if they don't, then it just becomes obvious and they'll fall away anyway. You just kind of assume yeah. they're being truthful with the the abstinence stuff and let that run. Oh yeah, yeah, and it'll come. Yeah, and it'll come through if someone's. You know how I know from my own line. Right. right. <laughs> my own line. It'll come through. You know, because uh, I I I was sponsoring myself while I had sponsors, and I thought, you know, here here was my thinking. Don't tell anybody, okay? This is just you and me talking. I thought, well, I need this person because it was all about me to get me through to the other side. So when I picked up, not if I picked up, when I was not willing to put the food down, I would omit and pray to God they wouldn't ask me, and oftentimes they didn't, because I didn't want to lie directly. And I would just lie through omission, eventually sharing that I was. And I would try, you know, and I tell people, you can try to work these steps while you're not abstinent. It's not going to work. You're wasting your time and mine. Although, you're not wasting my time that much because I'm abstinent, and I get to read <laughs> these words, and it reinforces, you're just, but you're wasting your time. You know, and, um, and and people still will be picking up the food and they will just kind of, and eventually they'll tell on them themselves and, 
you know, because you can't be incongruent. You can't be cog- human beings cannot be cognitively dissonant for too long. It's too utterly painful. You know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. most people will, will drop away, and I don't judge. Who am I to judge? Who died and made me God? You know. That's right. Well, thank you, Larry. Yeah. Appreciate it. Sure, time. sure. My pleasure. Thank you, Marla. Thank you for your question. Um, Larry, if you have a couple minutes, I would like to at least say that this would be our last call for questions. I hadn't done that yet. Sure. Okay, good. Anyone else with a question? This will be our last offering for questions to Larry. Press star one. Judy K. Hi, Judy K. And I heard one one, one more. Jean. Okay, hi, Gmail. Thanks. That would be our last two. Thank you so much. Judy Kay, your question, please. Thank you, Melanie, and thank you, Larry, for your share. Larry, I want to piggyback on Kathy Kay's question because it's the same but maybe a, a different or – so it's not so much hearing other people's experience, strength, and hope. Uh, or experience in having, you know, going through the battle wounds and the wars that they experienced. But the perception sometimes is that, okay, now that I'm in recovery, I'm perfect, and I never have pro- I never have these problems, never struggle with food, never, uh, never um, you know, have other character, especially other character defects crop up, things are, you know, it's because vision does present a, a lot of what is the, 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 the recovered side, hope, and that's good because that's what we want to see, but that may leave people with the perception that, oh, I'm doing all this and I'm not like those other people because what I hear is this, that, and the other thing, and I'm not anywhere near that. And, and so it's not so much about how they were in the past, but how to convey without sanctioning um, sitting in a uh, wallowing in a pool of uh, character defects, how to convey that, yep, we, uh, we are just walking this journey and we're, and we're, we're recovered, but we're not perfect. And because I can tell you, my character, de- sometimes I have really good days and then there are days my character defects are knocking at my front door before I open my eyes, it seems. And then they show up through the day. So if you can elaborate on that again, I would appreciate it. Sure, yeah, maybe this would help. Bill Wilson, um, one of our co-founders, was battled depression his whole life, uh, horrible depression. He was a womanizer in many ways. It was it was a different time. You know, I'm not I'm not I'm not you know saying this was okay. It's not. It wasn't then, and it isn't now. But he was. Uh, he was out there. I've read a lot about him and many others. These were imperfect individuals. Yet this recovery was very attractive. Very attractive. The meetings were well attended. It grew. We see the numbers. It grew by leaps and bounds. Um, the meetings weren't falling away. They were getting larger and larger. People were getting better. Um, not everyone was getting better. Some people fell off. Some people stayed, but it was growing. Lots of people were making tremendous improvements. Um, Abby Thatcher, another person, uh, he, he wasn't perfect. Uh, he, he, he drank later on, but he was, you know, 
you know, he, he was someone that carried the message to Bill at the kitchen table. Um, Dr. Bob, you know, this guy helped lots of people, but by no means used to call the, and again, that, it's not of the times, he used to call the nurses a woman. <laughs> can you imagine, can you imagine you come out of it? It's crazy, right? But that's what the way it was. He was not a perfect person, you know, um, there was no perfection. There's no perfection. Yet it was very attractive, very attractive, because you know why? People were getting better. So here's, here's I'm, I'm backing into answering your question. I don't worry about bringing a message of hope based on my transformation. I'm not on commission, nor am I on the line. I'll just speak for me. I can't speak for anyone but Larry. I'm not on the line for, for ego. You know, I'm on the line because it saved my life. This program saved my life. I didn't think it would, but it did. And it's made me into a better man. It does every day. And I've made such tremendous friendships and fellowship. I've seen people go back out. I've seen people die. I've seen people live and change and, um, and, and stay on this lifeboat. And so I don't worry so much. I really, what helps me is to just remember there is a God. It's not me. I need not apply for that job. Don't take myself too seriously. You know, I try to bring a little bit of levity to this. I don't worry about, I just know that, you know what I think it is? I know that there are lots and lots of people that are very attracted and uh, intrigued by this meeting. Because Why is that? Why is that? Because they're hearing some people getting better. And yes, there may be some people that say, not for me. I don't feel, yeah, I get some hope there, but I don't feel that I'll ever make it. Uh, step two, I don't know that God will ever do for me and restore me to sanity. Yet some of them still come or they leave and they come back. You know, we just work the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I, I don't think we should change a thing personally. That's just me. I mean, I, I'm just a man. I'm just a joker out here, really. So I don't know. I hope that helps. With that, I'll pass. Thank you so much, Judy K. Jean L., your question. Jean, star one. Talking to myself here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Larry. That was wonderful sharing. I wonder if you've ever done a special speaker meeting about your story. And if so, you know, what is the title of it? Yeah, you know, thank you for asking. Um, I, it may go back. I know um, I've done, you know, been honored to do a number of special editions on different things. I know my story itself probably goes back um, at least on the special edition to maybe 2012 or I think we go back now, right? That far. Um, we do. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, I, to be honest, it was probably one of the first one or two that I, that, that I did for, for vision for you. So 2012, maybe 2013. Um, and then I go through, but I, yeah, I do qualify and just do a standard qualification at different meetings. Some of those have been recorded, but on vision, yeah, you can find it there. Okay. And hear all about my nonsense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, and one other question: yeah. Are you going to be a speaker at the Big Book Conference in September? Oh, I'm just—I I don't know. I'm—I'm I'm just coming to 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 just enjoy the fellowship and just be the, just be a part of it, you know. So okay. anyway, they, if if Melanie tells me, Melanie will say, Larry, you're doing this. You're filling up packets. Uh, you're doing this and that. I'm doing it. If I'm, you know, speaking, I'll do that too. <laughs> so, thanks for asking. Thanks again. You got it. Bye bye. Thank you so much, Jean. Thank you so much. Yep, that's what we do, right? We <laughs> chop wood, carry water, right, Larry? 
You betcha. You betcha. Whatever we need. Thank you so much. And absolutely thank you again for the experience and strength and hope that you shared today in the answering of these questions. Um, it's very special. We will now close the way we always close the meeting out here at our Sunday special edition by reading um, page 164 in the big book, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answer will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transcend something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right. And great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God, admit your faults to him and to your fellows, clear away the wreckage of your past, give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as we trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.